Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, we had Matt Lehman on the show just now. He is running for United States Congress in the 4th District, which stretches from Nelson County and uh, Oldham County, kind of around uh, the area just east of Louisville, goes up to the river, and then stretches along the river all the way through northern Kentucky, all the way over to Greenup County. That is the district he's running in. He's running against Thomas Massey, who's the United States Congressperson there. I would say the scariest person in Kentucky politics. Uh, So definitely check him out. He's uh, running a really strong campaign, I think, in a district that really needs it. So uh, we talked to him about about his campaign, about the issues that animate him, and we did talk a little bit about what drives Thomas Massey, which is something he clearly has looked into quite a bit. So, Jasmine, how did you think that the interview went with Matt Lehman? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting hearing more about Thomas Massey's like political and economic philosophy that that he believes in and then Matt Lehman also talked a little bit about patent reform which I don't think we've ever talked about on the show before and I don't think that our listeners or maybe even you know that I worked for the intellectual property office at UK when I was in law school um, doing like data entry like filing patent documents and stuff so i thought that part was really interesting as well i did not know that so yes Mm -hmm. uh patents of course a a major federal issue not something we talk about when we're talking about state government so because he's running for federal office very relevant i really like the part of the interview where he talked about you know respecting thomas massey as more than just a joke because i do think that that is something that we miss here he wins all the time Mm -hmm. because of just partisanship in kentucky but he's a really dangerous person and i think that you know he's Matt Lehman is the type of person who is respecting that and realizing that that's something he needs to run on, that he needs to bring to the people in Northern Kentucky and to the rest of the 4th District, that this guy is quite a dangerous person who has a very important position of power, uh, and we we need to get rid of him. So that is, uh, that. anyways, that was a bit of a spoiler, uh, but definitely listen to the interview to hear more about that. We have lots to talk about before that, though. Jasmine's going to talk to us about a temporary, in, temporary injunction that's been granted in the six-week abortion ban lawsuit, one of the ongoing lawsuits that we have about abortion here in Kentucky. I am going to talk about Brady Industries, uh, which was in the news again. That's the aluminum plant, which would have been in northeastern Kentucky in Ashland and Boyd and Greenup County. I was start, supposed to be in Greenup County, then it was supposed to be in Boyd County. It's been it's been all over that region. Uh, and then we're going to end with a COVID update, something we haven't done in quite a while, but something that needs to be done this time. So, Jasmine, let's get started. Talk to us about this temporary injunction. All right, so recapping kind of the last few weeks after the Dobbs decision, Kentucky was one of the first states to outlaw abortion because of a trigger law that we had in place. But the Monday after Dobbs came out um, with the help of the ACLU, Planned Parenthood and the EMW clinic in Louisville filed a lawsuit in Jefferson circuit court to block the trigger law, as well as the six week ban on abortion from going into effect. So both of these bills passed in 2019. The trigger law makes it a class D felony to perform an abortion um, unless there's risk of death or serious permanent impairment to um, of a pregnant woman. And then the other one is like the six week heartbeat bill. And so The lawsuit is based on the Kentucky Constitution, and that's why it's in state court. Um, And the ACLU has argued that Kentucky's Constitution protects the right to privacy and the right to bodily autonomy. And so we talked about these state constitutional arguments um, a little bit on our July 6th show, um, if you want to go back and listen to that. So the first step in the lawsuit um, that we also talked about on July 6th was the request for a temporary restraining order. So that is like the emergency restraining order to enjoin another party's conduct that only lasts for a short period of time until you can have a full hearing on the motion for a temporary injunction. So um, there's not a lot of proof taken, if any, and that's going to be like a much shorter order and it's just an emergency temporary thing. Judge Mitch Perry in Jefferson Circuit Court granted the temporary restraining order. Daniel Cameron appealed to the Court of Appeals in the Supreme Court. 
they declined to reverse the order, so the temporary restraining order remained in place. Then Judge Perry heard the motion for the temporary injunction on July 6th. Um, so this would be a longer injunction that would enjoin the Attorney General from enforcing the two laws until there's full resolution on the merits of the case. And he issued a ruling on that motion on July 22nd, and he granted it. So that means that the six-week ban and the trigger law cannot be enforced and that abortion remains legal in Kentucky while the lawsuit is pending. So really good news. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to talk about the order a little bit because, you know, while the temporary restraining order was just a one-page document, this opinion was 20 pages. And so at the hearing... A board-certified OBGYN and provider at the EMW clinic testified for the plaintiffs, as well as an economist who talked a lot about, like, the impact, um, financial and otherwise, of banning abortion care. And then an OBGYN and a professor from Notre Dame testified for the defense. The standard for preliminary injunction under Kentucky law, we, we've talked about this several times on this show. Sometimes we've talked about the federal standard. They're all similar, but they just use a little bit different language. But basically, the first thing is there the plaintiff would suffer irreparable injury if an injunction isn't granted. Um, and there was testimony that in just the one week from the, dis- the Dobbs decision to the temporary restraining order being entered... Um, the EMW clinic had to turn away nearly 200 patients. Um, and there was also testimony about the harms and risks that can result from or can be exacerbated by pregnancy. Um, so he said there is an irreparable injury if I don't grant this injunction. The second um, is that equities must weigh in favor of an injunction. So the equities are, you know, what's the harm to the plaintiff and what's the harm to the defendant and and balancing those Harms. Um, the judge stated that the state has no interest in enforcing an unconstitutional law and that the plaintiffs have established doubt as to the constitutionality. He also talked about the defendant's argument. So the defense witnesses talked about how minority communities like have the majority of abortions, and so abortion advocates are advocating for eugenics and fewer minorities in Kentucky. That's that's the argument that it, they were making. It's one that you hear a lot like among people who believe that, but I believe the judge was pretty dismissive about this, right? Right. So um, the, the court's opinion said that that was a tired and repeatedly discredited claim, um, and, and he cited literature, you know, in his footnote, um, and what an injunction would do would simply return us to the status quo. And so right. I think he easily found that the equities weighed in favor of the plaintiff. Um, and then the last one is that a serious question must be presented that warrants um, trial on the merit. So a substantial question um, of law on the constitutionality is, is basically the big one that you need um, to get the injunction. And so the majority of the opinion was spent on this third factor. And so he analyzed both laws. First, the trigger ban. This one we talked about on our show a few weeks ago. And the argument here um, was like a separation of powers argument. So the court said that it's arguably an unconstitutional delegation of authority because it delegates authority, not just to a different branch of, state government in Kentucky, but to a different jurisdictional body entirely, since it, the language of it was like, it creates this class D felony upon the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. And so um, he found that there was an arguable separation of powers issue there. Um, He also found that it was likely to be unconstitutionally vague um, because it's not clear whether it's enforceable on the date that the decision was released or on the date the opinion becomes final. And so that vagueness about when you can enforce it 
creates a risk of arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement, which is also unconstitutional. Yeah, Jasmine, whenever we were talking about the arguments, you brought up these two things as being the strongest case, I believe. So you were right. Yeah. Good work. Uh, Nice legal analysis there. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely thought that those were really good issues. And so those, um, those were kind of the two main points of the trigger ban law. The six-week ban, of course, doesn't really have anything to do with, uh, you know, unconstitutional delegation of authority or anything like that. This is just about your rights under the state constitution, um, like the right to privacy. And so he talks, he analyzes the six-week abortion ban um, under three different constitutional protections. First, he talks about the right to privacy, and he cites a Kentucky Supreme Court case that states that the Kentucky Constitution offers greater protection for the right to privacy than the U.S. Constitution. And it says that Kentucky has a rich and compelling tradition of recognizing and protecting individual rights from state intrusion. Um, So even though that case um, was not about abortion, there is precedent recognizing that we have stronger privacy protections than the federal Constitution does. The court also, you know, spent some time when he was talking about privacy, talking about the wide ranging effects that the ban has on family decisions, not just terminating the pregnancy, but also raises things like IVF um, and things like that. You know, it's not just about the privacy to an abortion. It's about, you know, these private decisions and family planning and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I can add some personal color. Like we we go to an IVF clinic, and this is something that they're really worried about. Like they've yeah. shared with us, and they've talked to us about like all their support communities are like this is something we're very concerned about uh, in our future as to whether or not we're going to be able to continue to do our jobs and be able to do our jobs in the right way. So uh, it's not something that they, that industry is not worried about. So it's I'm glad that the court was talking about that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one is equal protection, and so you know laws must ab- apply to everyone equally and uh, cisgender men, you know, bear no legal con- consequences here. And so um, the law also arguably demonstrate discriminates on the basis of sex. Um, and then the last one was religious freedom. And, you know, this one wasn't really, I don't know that this one was part of the ACLU's argument. Um, the court noted Not all of the issues, you know, in this opinion were raised, but the court has an obligation to, um, you know, do a full analysis. And he also found an establishment clause issue. Um, So the court believes that the six-week ban also arguably violates Kentucky's establishment clause, which our Supreme Court has also stated that the Kentucky Constitution mandates stricter establishment clause interpretation than the federal constitution the court stated that the defense witnesses essentially advocated for independent fetal personhood um, and that's a belief that is distinctly christian and catholic he cites several different authorities regarding you know other religions belief about personhood um, but that the idea that like life begins at conception is a religious belief that the Christian and Catholic faith hold um, that they are imposing on other people with the six-week ban, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It it sounds like the religion piece is, like, even further than what the ACLU wanted to do, right? So this is, like, really strong opinion um, in favor of them, right? Yeah. I thought it was absolutely a really strong opinion. I, because the, the temporary restraining order was granted, I felt good that, the injunction would be granted as well. Um, But I honestly didn't expect such a strong opinion. And Judge Perry like remarked, this is not particularly a close call. I thought it was really good. I have it linked um, because the ACLU had it uploaded on their site. So um, listeners can read it. I condensed 20 pages into, um, Five minutes, about a page, a page <laughs> yes. and a half of our show notes. Um, so, so there's a lot more content there. But those, those are the basic. That's kind of the basic analysis that he followed. Sure. Um, so he found that at the very least, the plaintiffs met their burden of raising a substantial question on the merits as to the constitutionality of the two bills, and so the injunction was granted. Yeah. Um, the eight, attorney general will certainly appeal. 
Um, and that's probably where we'll be headed next to so the Kentucky Supreme Court. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, this is like this is a good clue for how this is going to go in in like the lower court, uh, which which is really important. And this opinion being really strong really gives us a good good reason to think it may continue up the chain being that way. Of course, it will end up in the Supreme Court's lap. And that is a little bit more of a political decision. I think it's fair to say the Supreme Court justices being a little bit more high profile in their elections being growing in importance, I think, as mm-hmm. we're, we're moving forward in, in, in the current situation. So that will be that will be another clue. But I definitely think for me, what I think what this tells us is that that constitutional amendment election that will be happening this fall is going to be just really important because if if we can win that it's possible that abortion may remain legal in Kentucky because of our Supreme Court. Like we could we could actually get that. And of course, I'm sure the legislature will try everything under the sun every year uh, to pass something that passes constitutional muster and, and they may hit something eventually. But but I mean, that that to me means that this constitutional amendment um, election in the fall is just going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know they're um, or are organizing efforts starting to happen a- around the constitutional amendment. And I hope that we can really like bring awareness to it. Sometimes these like ballot questions are worded really weird and we- it's really important that people know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So please pay attention, uh, get, get organized, join your voice to the organizing efforts. If you have the ability to do that. All right, Jasmine, thank you so much for that good analysis uh, of that opinion, which is going to, I guess, you know, we'll we'll just keep tracking this as it moves moves along. We want to return to a subject which we have been talking about for for five years, five years, Jasmine, (laughs) uh, and that is Brady Industries. Just a quick catch up in case you're new to the issue. Brady Industries was a company that Matt Bevin, the former governor of Kentucky and the Republican controlled legislature, lured to Ashland, Kentucky, the Ashland area, the northeastern Kentucky, with a 15 million dollar investment in the waning hours of the 2017 legislative session. A very short version of the story is that the incentive package was passed in total secrecy. Nobody even knew what the the company was when the bill was passed. Uh, And it turned out that the man running Brady was a total shyster. Uh, After years of failing to deliver on his promises, he was ejected from the company and went on to start a company that is building, this is not a joke, space elevators. Uh, That was a quick hit several months ago, Mm -hmm. uh, making the space elevators. Meanwhile, Brady Industries rebranded to a company called Unity Aluminum, and they have been kind of trying to salvage something out of the project. We've been talking about this for years. There's a lot in a backlog if you want to go back and like look up Brady Industries in our show uh, history. Unity, knee Brady, which, you know, they're they're back in the news because the company announced plans to build a nearly $2 billion plant in what they're calling the Southeastern United States. And they are building that plant along with Steel Dynamic, which is a much larger company that is based in Indiana. However, the Ashland site, which where the original plant was supposed to be built, is, quote, insufficient to meet the size and scope requirements of the new project. Unquote. That is according to a spokesperson via the AP. So, you know, this looks like that that Ashland site, which was the purpose for the investment, the place, the thing that they wanted when they put the $15 million investment down back in 2017, that is not going to be the site of the aluminum plant that Unity Aluminum will be part of. Brady, or excuse me, Unity has said that the state will recoup its investment, though, so the state will get paid back the $15 million that it invested. The governor, Governor Bashir, talked about this. Uh, governor Bashir said the state would try to retain the project. That's probably the headline there. That you know, the economic development cabinet has yet to start working with Steel Dynamics, but the cabinet, when they caught wind of this development, said that they were going to be actively reaching out and trying to salvage the the Steel Dynamics Unity Aluminum plant in Kentucky. Uh, they wanted to be there. And then another thing that he said, Governor Bashir said in his weekly address, was that the Brady deal, quote, is going to go down as the worst and shadiest economic development deal in Kentucky history, unquote. That's a, those are very strong words for him, Jasmine. Are those, I mean, that's not really how he talks most of the time, right? Would you agree with that? The worst. The, the worst. And yeah. shadiest. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know. He kind of talks like that when he's talking about Matt Bevan sometimes. That is true. He he does he kinda, get he he talks about like the Matt Bevan pardons kind of in that same way. I I think that that's true. There are things that get him animated, uh, and we can add Brady Industries to to the list, especially given that this is seems like it's totally out the window as something that can help Kentucky. Yeah, Bashir went on to criticize the partnership with Russell, who's a Russian-backed company that Brady entered into a deal with while they were sanctioned by the United States government. And he also criticized Terry Gill, who is Governor Governor Bevan's former economic development director, who then became the interim president of Unity Aluminum after Craig Bouchard, that shyster who's building the space elevators, was ousted. This is another gut punch to the people of Ashland and Greenham County who had a lot of hope that this project would provide much needed industrial work. The area does have several large industrial employers you know, that are in and around that area, but the biggest, which is AK Steel, that, that's the company that has long, deep roots in that region, is now completely disappeared. My, my father worked there a little bit. My grandfather spent his entire career there, as did my great-grandfather. So that company is totally gone, and, and there was a lot of hope that whatever Brady Industries would was would be able to fill that hole and it looks like that that's not gonna happen um and and there was already like a community college program that's supposed to be providing workers to this area people have graduated from that program already and have nowhere to work to use their skills in this very specialized uh field they're gonna have to leave the region if they want to use them so this is really really devastating for for the folks that live out there while Unity Aluminum's leaders did say that the state would recoup its investment, Governor Fischer pointed out that the state doesn't typically loan out money without interest, and $15 million, um, you know, that would, that would accrue quite a bit of interest over the past five years. I would also like to point out that the state is not an investment bank. The structure of the investment was always really strange. I, you know, this is just goes to show you why Matt Bevin was really unprepared to be the governor. When he made this deal with brady uh industries craig bouchard the structure of the deal looked like a venture capital deal it looked like somebody who was a private investor coming to a firm giving them startup cash to get something started so that you would make a lot of money at the end of the day governor bevan has been involved in several of those throughout the years he had he was involved in this like helmet that helped map brains at one point which actually i think actually had some success so i don't want to be act like i'm mocking that he he but this is what he does he does venture capital that's something that he's known for doing The state is not trying to make money. It's trying to develop the economy. It's trying to give people work to do so that they can make money and, you know, enjoy time with their families. That's the point of, of, uh, you know, these kind of investments, not to recoup a lot of money for the state. So even if we do get our $15 million back, even if we get $15 million back with interest, Northeast Kentucky has nothing but a bunch of broken hopes to show for it, which is, to me, why this is such a devastating situation. Um... Yeah, I don't know. There, there's nothing good about this. I, I don't think it's just really horrendous, forwards and backwards. And you know, uh, I, I don't even really know what to say at this point. How about you, Jasmine? You got anything to say about it? Yeah, I re- not really. I mean, you know, private companies don't have an interest in how they leave a community, but the state does. So this, I think everyone was rooting for this to work out um and it it was a huge failure (laughs) yeah yeah and and one of the more devastating things i mean i you know i you're astute to say that the companies they they don't have any stated interest it's not in their shareholders you know interest it's not really in the if the private owners of the company's interest to like leave the community better than you found it that that's not the incentives that they're responding to but companies some of them do a decent job of doing that and craig bouchard the entire Mm -hmm. time he was in northeast kentucky talked about how important the region was to him how bringing a company to appalachia was something that he was really you know uh, you know keen on something he really wanted to do and like kept saying this over and over and building up the hopes of people and it just ends up that people that this company um emulates the very worst things that corporations are known for in america like you have a lot of criticisms of corporate america of private industry and you know when you when you have those things come true no wonder people are so skeptical of the system um that that we exist under so that's uh that is how it goes yeah, just a real shame. I, it's just really frustrating, you know, and, and I know, you know, I, I have a little bit of a personal stake in that region and, and that maybe makes me a little bit more animated, but it would be just be devastating no matter where it was. So, yeah, I mean, I was upset when Google Fiber stopped working <laughs> in Louisville and that was pretty minor in my life. But this was something that 
um, could really like boost a whole community and economy um, and that you know that people trained and went to school for yeah um, so something like this is is much much more devastating yeah yeah it is all right let's stop talking about it it's making me upset um but let's move on to something that's also kind of depressing and that's the state of covid in kentucky robert our show's almost always depressing well you know one of these <laughs> days we we bring depressing news in a happy way i think maybe and it helps people feel a little better maybe hopefully uh yeah more uh, informed more informed sure there you go perfect yeah all right, Jasmine, uh, you you probably have figured out, given the fact that you're on mute coughing in <laughs> the background yep. here, mm-hmm. is that COVID infections in Kentucky are up substantially. So despite our pledge to retire the COVID update, it seems prudent to bring it back this week. Yeah, Kentucky- I don't have it again, like clarification for listeners. I, it's, it's the same cough. Y- you just have a nagging state. cough that has been yeah. in, in existence since you had COVID, which is not an yeah. uncommon occurrence for the people who've had it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Kentucky has seen steady increases in cases since mid-April, when the cases reached a low of just below 3,000 infections per week. As of this Monday, cases are five times that, about 16,000 you know, positive cases in Kentucky that we know about. There's likely many more because many cases are being identified via at-home tests and managed without any clinical interventions. Jasmine, did you ever get a PCR test? I did. Okay, um, so you're in the list. You're in the numbers. Yeah, so yeah. I knew I knew I was getting sick, but I was testing negative, and so I scheduled a PCR for the next day, and that came back positive, and so did my rapid test that day. Yeah, so you, you did make it into the numbers, but I'm many people... System. Yeah, many people don't, uh, and I, I mean, yeah, that's... My yeah, my husband did it. Okay. Your husband, not in the numbers. Uh, that, yeah. That's something that we're going to see a lot of. So it's likely that there's way more than 16,000 cases. So when comparing this week to you know weeks early in the pandemic when testing wasn't widely available uh, or at-home testing wasn't widely available and you had to get a PCR to be no- noted as positive, you know, it's kind of tough to compare apples to apples. But we that's what our, our public number is right now is 16,000. Infections are really significant in every region of the state right now. Most counties in the newer version of the red zone, which is a measurement that the CDC gives based on lots of different factors that, you know, are a little tough for me to track. Using the old version of the map, which is only based on infection rate, nearly the entire state has an incidence rate above 25 cases per 100,000, which would qualify for the red zone previously. But but very few are seeing those huge case numbers. You know, we had (laughs) during the Omicron and Delta surges, there were counties that had like two. 200, 500 cases per 100,000 people. Um, We're not seeing that. Uh, Jefferson County is at 43 cases, which is, you know, pretty high. Fayette County is at 33. And and the county with the most infections is is Powell and Boyd, and they have 57 cases per 100,000. So again, uh, you know, we, we are seeing high levels of infection, but not just uh, crushingly huge uh, numbers of infections like we had seen in those, those rises hospitalizations have risen substantially, but they are way lower than the other waves of COVID. There is about 700 cases of COVID in Kentucky hospitals right now. The alpha wave, which was, you know, right there towards, um, you know, the end of, of 2020 in Kentucky, that peaked at 1,800, so more than double in the first wave of COVID. The Delta and Omicron waves, they didn't hit their peaks until about 2,600 cases. So those were, those were much, much larger, almost four times as high uh, as we have right now. So this rise has also been much more gradual and all three of the previous big waves, it has shot up in a matter of weeks and come down right after that. And we are on a, like I said, the the trough was in mid-April. We're now towards the end of July. So we've had like all of May, all of June, and nearly all of July that we have just been steadily rising as opposed to that huge, massive rise. It's a much flatter curve than we had before. ICU rates are just a bit higher than the valley between the alpha and delta waves. So right now there's 85 cases in the ICU and in between the lowest point after alpha was over before delta started, uh, the the number of cases in the ICU is 56. So we are above that, but we are still pretty low in the ICU, a lot of ICU capacity. This is an infection issue right now. Our healthcare capacity is still there. Um, As of right now, it is still there and and meeting, meeting the challenge. 
our vaccination rate, which has been very, very low for a very, very long time, started to tick up. And I think that that's likely due to the inclusion of zero to five-year-olds gaining the ability to get vaccinated. However, I would have expected our rate to rise a lot more than this with those people being able to get vaccinated. Only about 1% of the children zero to four years of age have been vaccinated. That's 4,406, including one Louisa Connie. So she, uh, she, she got her, uh, I think she's had two out of her three shots already. Uh, she got an Elmo Band-Aid and an Abby Band-Aid uh, from Sesame <laughs> Street. So there you go. Um, maybe this will rise as more and more kids go to their pediatrician visits. I think likely that's going to happen where kids will go to the doctor. The doctor will talk about vaccines and then probably they'll get it then. Um, you know, when you're young like that, you're taking your kid to the doctor a lot. So a lot of opportunities to talk to the doctor about the safety and the necessi- necessity of these kind of vaccines. So I think it's possible we will see more and more little kids getting vaccinated. Meanwhile, 66% of all Kentuckians have at least one shot of the vaccine and 57% are fully vaccinated. 70% of the people over the age of five have been vaccinated and 97% of the people over the age of 65 have at least one vaccine dose. So the people who are most at risk of death have been vaccinated, but they still are at significant risk of death even while vaccinated because of the way that this disease works. COVID is a lot different now than it was in 2020 or 2021. Most people have had it at least once. A large number of folks have had it multiple times. Our metrics and, you know, my personal experience seem to show that getting it is much less of a big deal than it was. I don't mean to say it's not totally awful. I, you know, I've watched you, Jasmine, over the past couple of weeks. It seems like it sucks. It seems really bad. Uh, you know, it's deeply uncomfortable. It seems like it's no fun at all. Um, but I'm not really worried about that many people dying, you know, or going to the hospital. Uh, I've seen less and less of that. The last person I know that died of COVID happened about a year ago. And there were like three or four people that I had known that died of the disease in, in just a short span of months during Delta. And then a few, uh, really, I guess the last person I knew that died was during during Delta. And I knew a lot of people that went to the hospital during Omicron. Um, so it, it, it's different now. It is some, something that's a lot different now. Um, there's still a lot of people getting sick, though. And there are still people dying from COVID every single day. Kentuckians dying every single day from COVID. Um, And more and more people are catching it every day. One thing to think about right now is we are still increasing. We are not at the top, I don't think. Um, We are going to keep going up probably for a little while. So put on your mask whenever you're uh, uh, around people you don't know. And think about wearing it whenever you go out in public. Jasmine, you had mentioned that it came into your house after after an outdoor event. Um, So that was Mm -hmm. something I had been doing was just like wearing, not wearing my mask whenever I was outside, no matter how many people I was around. Uh, turns out that that's also a little dangerous. Masks are really readily available now. They're cheaper than ever, even for really high quality masks. So uh, just think about doing that. Um, that that's the best way that you have to protect yourself right now. I, I, I would, as I expect and hope that everybody uh, that listens to this show has gotten all their vaccines and boosters. But if you haven't done that, make sure you do that. All right, Jasmine. Um, I would say, do you have any COVID insights? Uh, but I think you've been sharing them throughout the, the past couple of weeks. Uh, I'm glad that you're feeling better. Hopefully, you're back to 100% uh, sooner rather than later. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our show uh, for this part, at least. Let's get to our interview with Matt Lehman. Matt Lehman is the Democratic nominee in the 4th U.S. Congressional District, which starts in Nelson County, snakes around Louisville, and then moves along the river all the way to Greenup County. Matt Lehman is a native of northern Kentucky and lives there today. Professionally, he's been a successful entrepreneur in the life sciences, and he was a McConnell scholar who graduated from the University of Louisville in 1999. Matt Lehman, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you for having me. It's uh, looking forward to it. Thanks, Jasmine and Robert. Yeah, we're always thrilled to talk to U.S. congressional candidates because it's a completely different race. And, of course, it's a much larger area. Uh, and, you know, just the way that you run for it is so much different. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. But, you know, you are in a running in a district that, that Democrats have had trouble being successful. Um, so, you know, as somebody who, like we mentioned, has been an, a successful entrepreneur, why did you decide to make this big life change to run for office, even knowing how, how hard it will be to win this seat? Um, there's a lot in that question. Um, you know, first, like, I mean, you know, listen, think, think, things come and go. Um, you know, it, it's always a challenge taking on a 10 year incumbent, um, in terms of, you know, finances, name recognition, all those types of things. But, uh, 
Like I said, you know, I've been around Kentucky long enough to see certain areas go from Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican. Um, it wasn't that long ago the 4th District was represented by Ken Lewis, a Democrat from uh, Boone County. You know, what really prompted me to take, um, you know, to take this on is I am very, you know, I, I've always been inclined, um, interested in politics. As you said, I was a McConnell scholar and political science at the University of Louisville. Um, always tried to get involved in, in uh, you know, politics and policy. But um, I, I'm really, on a personal level, very concerned about sort of the, the extremists in our government these days, you know, people who kind of, people like Thomas Massey who just really don't take the job seriously and, and do not do a good job of representing Northern Kentucky. I mean, I know the area well. I've grown up here. My family's here. Um, and it's uh, it's very frustrating. That, that, that's why I'm taking this on. Um, like I said, it, I, I do know it. it you know, it, it's an uphill climb, but um, it's something we got to do. Absolutely, yeah. Whenever you say uh, extremists in the government, uh, I'm glad that you brought it home and say <laughs> include including the the extremists that you're running against. Uh, that's certainly certainly the yeah. case in the fourth district in Kentucky. Um, right. So so the district. The, you know, the 4th District in, in Kentucky has has been challenged every year since 2018, and it's been challenged many times in the past as well by Democrats. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to malign anybody who's run for the seat before. They all did a good job. We've had a few of them on the show. But but you, you know, I don't I don't know if you're necessarily running a harder race, but you certainly have outraised every Democrat already um, who's who's run for the race in more than a decade. Um, so, it, you know, it does look like your your campaign has a little bit more of that professional sheen on it than, than some of the other folks that have run before um you know are you seeing your efforts to run that kind of campaign pay off in in what ways i think you bring up a good point and again i listen i don't know what all the various reasons are i mean look it it is a major life commitment to run for congress especially in, in a place that has the geographical spread um i do think the big difference for me is i i have the opportunity to do this full time i mean this is what i do every day i'm getting around all parts of the district um, you know, I, I do. You know, I do think one of the advantages I have over um, some of the more recent candidates that have challenged is, I mean, I am a long-term resident. I have a lot, I have a very strong network in Northern Kentucky, which is the most urban, suburban part of this district. Um, you know, I think built being able to build off of that is very important. Um, yeah, so I, I do see it paying off. I mean, I, I've been able to work productively with moderate Republicans, especially up here in Northern Kentucky, uh, people in the business community, you know, people that in constituencies that would not, you know, always necessarily lend themselves to a Democratic candidate. And I think that's been a very productive uh, part of this campaign. Um, I've been very deliberate about, again, reaching out to all parts of this campaign. And you mentioned the money, and I am very proud of you know, nearly all of my fundraising has come from people in Kentucky and, to, you know, in, in the Cincinnati metropolitan area. Um, you know, a lot of people in Cincinnati have a vested interest <laughs> in this seat as well. I mean, the Cincinnati airport is in this district. Uh, the Brent, you know, the, the infamous Brent Spence Bridge, which is the source of, this, you know, the second biggest source of delays uh, for trucking in the country. Um, you know, so this is a major issue. So, you know, um, but I, it, it really is a campaign built on people in this region who want something better and have really been able to stump up and help support this campaign. And I appreciate that. You mentioned the geographic spread of your district, and that's kind of what our next question is about. So, you know, the fourth district has seen a little bit of a change during redistricting, but the most populated area um, is still northern kentucky so can you talk a little bit about how your campaign balances campaigning in northern kentucky where you live with all of these other different parts of the district yes and i i do feel grateful the opportunity to do this full time because it's you know this isn't like john yarmouth's district where i had to drive you know 20 minutes across town <laughs> right hang on We've looked at about 65% of the voters are in what you call the, the northern Kentucky area, the Cincinnati metropolitan area. Uh, about another quarter of the voters are east and south of Louisville, so in, in the Louisville metro area. And, and the balance of those voters are throughout a number of small towns and more rural areas. So we go as far east as Russell, Kentucky, which is in Greenup County. You know, and, and, you know, I, there's no, you know, I, my, my focus is on the whole district. 
I mean, clearly as we get uh, further, you know, a little closer to the to November, um, you'll know, have to spend some time where the the you know where the voters are, and that's going to be around Louisville and in Northern Kentucky. But I, I'm making a very very deliberate effort. You know, to, I was in Grant County and Harrison County last week, Lewis County, Mason County, Bracken County, Greenup County. You know, next week I'll, actually next week I'll be more in the Louisville metro, so I'll be in Crestwood and Shelbyville and Taylorsville um, next week. And, you know, just uh, keep at it. There's no magic tricks here. <laughs> just uh, getting on the road and, and, and doing it. Yeah, so historically the district has moved along the river between you know, the Louisville and then Eastern Kentucky. Um, but as time gone along, more and more of Central Kentucky has been added to the district. And um, it now has several landlocked counties in the fourth. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, people that you've met throughout the district, how um, people in different parts of your district are different in some ways, and then also how they're similar? That's always a hard question. I mean, I've traveled a lot with work. I actually lived in Europe for seven years, you know, lived in New York, California for a while, went to Kentucky. I've lived in a lot of different places. And I, sometimes I, I don't think people are really all that different around the world, much less in, you know, different parts of Kentucky. I mean, when it, you know, listen, I mean, yes, in Northern Kentucky, maybe people's daily focus is more on traffic and the bridge. And, you know, when you get to, some of the more rural counties, they have more interest in, you know, broadband access and, and you know, and frankly, the whole district. And the one thing I will say that ties this whole district together, you mentioned the Ohio River, um, the Ohio River floodplain, um, sanitation districts, that these are very important issues um, all along the river. Uh, so you do, I hear a lot about that, various river ports, um, those types of things. You know, and, but yeah, listen, I mean, there are a few landlocked counties, you know, as you mentioned, like Owen County and Harrison County, um, you know, listen, they're, they're, they're looking for the same thing that anyone else is, fair representation, somebody's going to go to D.C. and fight for, you know, our fair share of the federal funding that's going around. Um, when you get outside the real urban areas of northern Kentucky, the other thing I really found, the one thing that ties the 4th District together, that this was the heart of tobacco country in Kentucky historically. And the legacy of the, you know, when the federal tobacco buyout program ended in 2004, um, there, there, there's still wide areas that are kind of struggling with that. Um, what I found is some of the, you know, the closer you get to Cincinnati or Louisville, places like Shelby and Oldham County or up here, you know, Grant County, they, they've, they've recovered a little bit better. I mean, I know we're talking about this is almost 17 years ago now, but um, you know, the, the areas closer to the metros um, kind of came back a bit more quickly. We still have a number of counties where they've still struggled to kind of find that replacement cash crop. Um, There's a lot of interest in hemp for a while, but that didn't really work out. And now we're seeing um, cattle. Uh, so Kentucky's now the largest cattle producer east of the Mississippi. And so I think there's a lot of promise with some of these products. And, you know, but... Uh, like I said, on the whole, I don't think you know people aren't really all that different. It's just uh, you know the, the facts on the ground about what they're looking for may be a little different. But you know we're all just looking for safe, good schools, safe communities, economic opportunities, and that's about it. Housing and healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Now I am glad you mentioned the tobacco settlement uh, because that is like such an important part of those communities. And yeah, I mean if if you haven't been paying attention. To Kentucky politics for 20 years, you may overlook it, but the, the tobacco settlement uh, was just so important um, to those those people in those areas, and you know uh, that that is that is continues to be a really important issue in places like Grand County, Anderson County, places yeah. like that out there. Um, yeah, and I also you know the second the second district absorbed uh, the 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 rest of Jefferson County that used to be in the fourth. Um, so it used to be that you could say you know uh, it started with uh, people who are concerned about bridges and traffic in East Jefferson County and then hits uh, Cincinnati where people are concerned with bridges and traffic and now you go all the way over to Russell people still concerned about bridges and traffic new bridge 
out in Russell as well. So that's a, as a big got, part of it. There's a whole lot of bridges over the Ohio River in my district. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some nice new ones. Some need to be replaced. Uh, you know, yeah. that's probably something that will continue to be the case in the 4th District forever. Um, so the United States Congress is, of course, a big job if you get it. Um, so, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about your career at the very beginning, being an ent- entrepreneur and, and then also, um, e- you know, working in the life sciences. Uh, and, and, of course, your education where you were a McConnell scholar. So what parts of your background and your career do you think have prepared you to be a congressman? And, and, and how do you expect the job to go if you get it? Yeah, um, well, yeah, I mean, I think about my, my whole career, you know, my education, my career, I mean, just, you know, the, the everything from the ability to read um, and read quickly and understand complex things, um, to be articulate, or, you know, I think I'm reasonably articulate, a public speaker, uh, the ability to negotiate, um, compromise, you know, work through things, even when you don't get everything you want, um, employing people, you know, setting expectations, you know, setting out uh, goals for your organization. So as you get into Congress, you know, let's say you should get a staff of about 16 people and how you bring those people together and, and, and you know, various strengths. You know, I mean, look, business is not the same as the government. I mean, that's for sure. Um, some ways business is easier. You know, you have a very specific goal or a couple of goals and being the government is not, you know, there's about a million different goals and a million different constituencies that are looking for often sometimes competing objectives. So, um, but, you know, like I said, I, I, I think, you know, again, listen, also that your family, I mean, the ability, you know, for your family to cope with you being gone half the year and traveling a lot. So that's also, you know, and I think that's often an overlooked issue when people mm-hmm. go to Congress. Um, in fact, look, I, I do know the two Congress people before Thomas Massey, I mean, they both spoke about that in this fourth district that, you know, they only served a couple terms because it really was hard, you know, so I, but I do think we're prepared for that. And I mean, I've, again, traveled a lot. I've spent weeks away from my family on business trip. You know, it's, um, you know, where we, we, we are well prepared for these types of challenges. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you bring up family. Uh, you know, that that is something that we often hear from uh, the, the women we hear running for office and, and not that often brought up by men. So I am glad to hear you mention it because it is really important for everybody and it is a major, major part of it. Um, yeah, we, we talked about it a little bit before, but the current office holder in the 4th District is Thomas Massey, who, you know, in in the most generous terms, I think we can call him quixotic, and you know, but really he's radically conservative and one of the most uh, dangerous people that have been elected to either chamber of Congress currently. Um, you know, obviously people, if ele- if you, if you get elected, can expect a very different experience from their congressperson. But just like, what are the biggest ways that you think that you contrast with Thomas Massey? Boy, how long is this podcast? Uh, Take as much time as you need. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, where to start? Um, So we're going to start with, and I was, you know, this kind of came up yesterday. Somebody, a friend of mine had sent me a a video of Thomas Massey talking, it was, I think, four or five years ago at, uh, it was called the Mises Institute. So I don't know if you have ever heard of Ludwig von Mises. Um, We're going to start there. Very interesting gentleman who uh, had had a, uh, he was an economist. He was born in the city we call Lviv now, a Ukrainian, Western Ukrainian city. At that time, it was part of the Austrian empire. So the town was called Lemberg at the time. You know, he had a very traumatic childhood. He was a Jewish refugee um, from, you know, Western Ukraine, escaping the Nazis, found his way to New York. And, and again, I mean, really lost, you know, his family was actually pretty successful, um, I believe, in the railroads and, and that part of the Austrian Empire. And they lost everything. They showed up in New York. And he became an economist and really founded this thing called the Neo-Austrian uh, School of Economics. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, the, it's a school of economics that one, I mean, Thomas Massey is clearly describes himself as a strict adherent to the neo-Austrian school of economics. And I think if you, if you actually go read about this, you will understand it. He's not quixotic or weird or nuts. He is an orthodox neo-Austrian economist, and that's how he sees the world. So, you know, and, and it's a it's a philosophy that I've come to understand. Like, you have to have, you, you basically, you almost have to be a damaged person 
to be able to adhere to this type of philosophy. Okay, so von Mises, like his his view of the world, was that the human condition is so difficult. Like that, there is the the only thing that matters is absolute, uncompromising individual liberty. It is not possible for humans to come together and organize any type of institution to advance the common good, because all that will the only thing that will happen, you know, and that that goes for governments, corporations, unions, public schools, you know, you, you name it, like, you know, um, it, it, it's an absolute, you know, an absolute hostility to any sort of organized human activity um, because it can potentially limit individual liberty. You know, it, it becomes such an extremist ideology in the school of economics, and they call it economics, it's really a political theory, but you know, and it, it, it is so uncompromising, it gets to a point where even von Mises would talk about, you know, you may need to actually deploy what we would kind of understand as like fascist methods to enforce, you know, demo, you know when, when too many people choose things in, in, in a democratic election, you know, that doesn't matter. And, and if people are choosing to come together and, and establish something like a social security system and a government, that's so unacceptable. We may actually have to, you know, again, fascist or authoritarian methods by a benevolent dictator may just have to come in and protect um, individual liberty. Okay. So I know that's a long introduction to, I mean, but this, and, and hey, listen, I need to get on this podcast and he will go through this. This is exactly how he thinks. Um, he is extremely hostile to corporations. He, you know, absolutely hostile to government, absolutely hostile to unions. I mean, he, he does not like public schools. He does not like publicly funded universities. Um, you know, he's extremely suspicious of any, you know, like just, you know, even, you know, he's, he's been fighting with the USDA and the, and the, and the Cattlemen's Association about whether, you know, trying to find ways to exempt our cattle from being, in, you know, the beef being inspected, um, you know, and the list goes on. So when you ask how am I different I, I, I mean, I, I, there, there is almost no crossover in my worldview, my political philosophy, how I see the promise of the ability, you know, and everyone gets frustrated. Look, sometimes the government's too bureaucratic or too slow. I mean, people have you know, the IRS can be a pain. You know, I get all this, you know, and, and look, everything. You know, if you ever work, you work at a big company, you know, sometimes they're a pain and they constrict your individual liberty by saying you can't come to work on drugs or something, you know, like all, all these things, you know, so, and yes, I mean, they're frustrating, but I, I am very much an institutionalist. I think the only way our society, our country, the world moves forward is by people coming together in various types of organizations, including the government to advance things. And it, sometimes it's takes fighting and it takes compromise and you always, you always get your own way, but that is the only path forward for humanity is to be able to do that. So, I hope that wasn't too long and philosophic, but it's, uh, but I, it, listen, I, I mean, it is just to be clear. I mean, you know, Mises, you know, he was the kind of intellectual cover for the, for the Italian style of fascism, Mussolini's fascism. I, I mean, so when, when you take those types of things to an extreme, they, they become very dangerous. And, and I don't want to under, you know, I know people like to laugh about Thomas Massey. And I think that's where maybe some of the previous, look, you talk about previous candidates again. I don't think a lot of people have taken him seriously. You know, they think he's such a joke. He's so far out there. It's a very dangerous ideology. And again, I don't know if there's, I don't think most people in the fourth district even watch or hear what he talks about. I mean, he's not that long ago, he was on a right wing YouTube station with Marjorie Taylor Greene debating whether what's the appropriate percentage of Americans that should be sufficiently armed to overthrow the government? Should it be 20% or 30%? And, you know, he, could, he was struggling a little bit, you know, with his, you know, just how, just how much fascism is acceptable if we really need to, you know, secure everyone's individual liberty. I mean, that this, this is very, very far out there and, and this is our congressman. So, you know, and if you understand him through this lens, all of his votes, you know, which, I think again, the average person would probably find offensive or, or or frustrating. I mean, it all makes sense. I mean, he is just he is there 
in his own small way um, to try to dismantle our government. So. Yeah, I don't think that answer was too long or philosophical because I, I think it, it's important that people know um, that he's dangerous and, and, and you know, where, where some of the votes he takes that seem crazy and things like that. Um, it's important to know where it comes from. And I definitely learned more about um, the philosophy that he adheres to. So I really appreciated that answer. Um, we do want to talk to you a little bit about issues before yeah. we let you go. Um, your career has been spent mostly in entrepreneurship and life sciences. And those are both industries that government intersects with in significant ways. Are there any specific proposals or bills that you hope to um, lead in trying to get passed in Washington around life sciences or entrepreneurship if you're elected? Interesting. Okay. And, and as you mentioned that, so I will, there may be one area I have some, some area of agreement with Thomas Massey. Um, so he it is actually in patent reform. Um, you know, I do think, you know, about 10 years, gosh, it was about 10, 10, 11 years ago, um, there were some reforms to our patent system that I don't think worked as intended. It, it was intended, you know, I can get really down the weeds, but um, <laughs> so Thomas Massey is actually, he, he actually has um, sponsored a bill to try to roll back some of those reforms. Um, you know, it, it, so our current patent system, it, I mean, it really is biased towards larger organizations with a lot more resources that, I mean, it, it's a burdensome administrative process at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so even let's say if you're an inventor and you get a patent, there's a, any number of post-patent grant uh, reviews that can be challenged. So, you know, some big company didn't like your patent or, you know, they, they can really tie you up and it gets very, very expensive as a small company or a small inventor to, to defend your patent. I mean, it, it, you know, if you're an inventor and you have a real patent or a good patent that has some commercial viability, you need to plan on hundreds of thousands of dollars over the life of that patent just to defend it, um, which is really frustrating. Of course, you know, so I, you know, again, in Thomas Massey fashion, he probably way overshoots and he's, you know, trying, I mean, it, it, it's, he's, you know. Eliminate all patents, I think. is Yeah, well, on the, well no, no, he's, you know what, it's funny, he's a big fan of patents. Right. You know, and I think, again, it goes very much into individual, you know, the whole it, it really is about how do individuals uh, protect their property against, and mm -hmm. you know, listen, and again, I, I'm a, I, I think I'm a little more balanced in the sense that, you know, I, I, patents are very important. Um, it is the lifeblood of being able to invest in new technologies, you know, life sciences technologies, other technologies. But again, it, it, it has, it has gotten to a point where it's a, it, it, really is difficult for a small inventor or a small company to defend their patent. So I think some balanced reforms would make sense. And that is something I would like to work on. Like I said, I, he has submitted a bill that I think is a little bit much. And again, you know, like typical Thomas Mass, I mean, it, he's got some other kind of, let's call them, you know, kind of extremist co-sponsors that nobody really takes seriously. So it is clear this bill's never going to go anywhere. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to get out of committee. I mean, he has zero, it's been a long time since he's been able to get a bill out of committee that even gets a mm -hmm. vote on the House floor. So even, even if maybe some of his inclination on this issue is correct, he's, he's got no friends and he does not work well with others in DC, so it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, so anyway, so some, some, you know, help basically, you know, I, it is interesting to me to make sure we can protect smaller companies, smaller inventors against patent abuse by larger organizations. Um, you know, I, you know, healthcare is interesting. You know, I've, worked in this long enough to, you know, the, the reimbursement, I mean, look, I, our, our health insurance, health administration in this country is entirely too complicated and is entirely too expensive. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's frustrating. I mean, it, it, anyone who would work in healthcare, I mean, from a doctor to a nurse, to a patient, to, you know, like I said, I was more on, you know, the developing of therapeutics and, and, and more on the pharmaceutical side of, the, I mean, it's just so complicated and it, it can be so demoralizing, you know, if you're a physician and, you know, you're, you're spending hours and hours, you know, negotiating with insurance companies, you know, trying to understand co-pays, it, it is, so, you know, I, I would, 
be, I'm very strongly in favor of trying to find administrative relief in a number of these areas, trying to simplify certain areas, um, and it, with the eye towards bringing down cost. And I do think there, it's not just me, but there's been a number of groups out there really identified, you know, 10, 12 principles that could really um, improve our current um, healthcare system in that regard. So that, that's, that's a big focus of mine as well. Gotcha. Are there any, you know, other major issues that you're passionate about or um, other bills that have been filed that you got your eye on? Um, well, let me say, I mean, generally, yeah, I, I mean, let's say issues that, you know, definitely, I, again, have kind of motivated me to get involved in this. Um, you know, I, I do think looking at hemp and, and cannabis in particular, and I know there's, you know, there's complicated uh regulatory framework around a lot of those but i i would that is something i you know i think um i think as americans sort of i'd say come to their senses and have a better understanding of this i think and, and those markets become more normalized and, and increasingly legalized i think being able to bring those products into kind of a normal um agricultural program um you know with USDA price supports and, and, you know, supports for exports. And, 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 you know, the, I think that would, frankly, I think that would be a huge benefit to a lot of rural Kentucky to be able to have product, you know, cash crops like that brought into a normalized agricultural program. Um, you know, uh, the, the, so that's been very interesting for me, of course, you know, being able to deploy effectively, you know, there's also, there's bills, but there's also the other part of being a legislator is, like the infrastructure bill that did pass. I mean, there's still a lot of money out there, but you know, I think a lot of people understand it's not like Joe Biden just sends money out. You know, there's a process <laughs> where local government, state, you apply for these funds for certain projects. And so I do think that is a big, you know, this is important to me is to be a very reliable partner in DC for projects in this district to help facilitate uh, getting the funding for these. And, uh, you know, again, I think that is something our current congressman has not done well. And look, I, I get very specific feedback from you know, local people in local government. So like a lot of county judge executives in my district, mayors, um, people in business, um, you know, they've given up on our congressman. I mean, they, they, they call John Yarmouth, they call Andy Barr, and they call Hal Rogers, depending on where they are in this district, when they actually need help on something. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's really disappointing. So... Um, so that that's also a big part of what I, I would like to be able to rectify. Absolutely, no, yeah, that 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 is not great. Whenever you have major or major officials in in cities and counties that need help from their congressperson, and they go to outside of your district, uh, not what you would like to see. Uh, yeah, and and we've talked a lot about about cannabis as as an agricultural product in this show also, and it's really good to hear somebody talking about that. That is something that would require the federal government to help fix if we were to make progress on that. So. Really good to hear that. Um, okay, one quick question before we go. Um, you know, we like to ask this of, of folks, especially running for federal office, but are there any historical political figures who inspire you and, and you know, you might hope to emulate either historical or current and just like one or two? Yeah, I struggle. You know, <laughs> I could ask this a lot and I kind of give the same lame answer. Look, I, I, I think all politicians deserve to be held and with some level of suspicion and, and held to account. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, I'm not sure politics is an honorable profession. Okay, so it, it is, it's a necessary thing. Um, and I have thought about this as well. You know, when people ask, so what, you know, there's a politician I was always impressed by. It was actually Martha Lane Collins. Um, you know, she didn't serve in D.C., and, but she, she probably would have if her stupid husband wasn't so corrupt. Um, but, you know, the... Look, I was young, but I, I do. She was kind of really the first governor I remember paying attention to, and what you know what she was doing in that election when she you know she beat some very established, you know, very kind of established Democrats in the primary. Beat Jim Bunning, who was a very well funded, you know, very well funded guys in the Baseball Hall of Fame, so he had all the name recognition in the world, and she beat him, and turned out to be a you know a, a very effective governor. And that time, you know, you can only get one term. I mean, she brought occupational reform, you know, safety reforms to Kentucky. She reformed the educational system in Kentucky. She brought Toyota to Georgetown, even though, you know, I know there's been tensions between the unions and Toyota for a long time. But, um, you know, 
turned out to be a really effective just, you know, leader for the state, you know, and doing exactly what you need your elected representatives to do is, you know, doing deals, making compromises to take things steps forward. So, yeah, let uh, her, her lieutenant governor that served with her was Steve, uh, Steve Bashir, and, uh, you know, his, his son is Andy Bashir. So, you know, the tendrils of Martha Lane Collins, they reached down into oh, yeah, and, that, and again, she really did. She brought along, a, uh, uh, as you might like, it's kind of the next generation of really. You know, I, I call them Kentucky progressives. You know, progressive in this in in the way that is meaningful to most people in Kentucky, and and really made you know she you know those things did make a difference in people's lives. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't know, maybe you can correct me. And, and I always remember was she the one who banned advertising on the Kentucky Parkway system? I don't know. I, I have to look that up now. It's either her or Bert. It might be older than that. It might be. Okay. It might have been Bert Combs. I know that he okay. was like. And, and also, I think that they were like kind of. Can I, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to oh. speak incorrectly. Yeah, uh, that that very much could, could have been it, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, she does have a doll in the Capitol because they have all of the first ladies of Kentucky mm-hmm. as dolls. And uh, it was either going to be her or her husband. And she was like, "Well, you can put me in the display <laughs> case." Mm-hmm. So that is yeah. that is something we have for sure. Awesome. All right. Before we let you go, how can people learn more about you and support your campaign? Oh, well, we have a website, uh, Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N, the number four, Kentucky spelled out, dot org. So Lehman for Kentucky dot org. Um, we got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think we have a TikTok, but I don't really know how to use that. So um, all and they're all the same, Lehman for Kentucky. So you can find us. Um you know, and uh, like I said, I, I mean, I, I will be around. So, I mean, physically, I encourage people, like I said, I mean, I, I don't know where your listeners are, but I'm, I'll am i be all through the district, uh, be in the Louisville metro area all the next week. So, Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKWAPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.